Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air. This podcast is dedicated to the millions of family caregivers who want wellness tips and self-care solutions, who seek expert advice, and who want news about healthy aging and how to create well-home design in our forever homes. I'm Sherry Snelling, a corporate gerontologist, author, and educator, a TV interviewer, host, and news commentator. I'm joining you from Southern California, where our interviews and news take us all across the country to explore the many ways to help you on your caregiving journey and to lift you up here at Caregiving Club On Air. Welcome back to Caregiving Club On Air and our season three with episode 20, which is our first episode of 2023. I'm your host, Sherry Snelling. And I'm so excited that we're in season three when I started this podcast, which only seems like a couple of months ago. I can't believe we're we're already in our season three. Also, I'm wearing, for those of you who are watching us on our YouTube channel, our video version, I'm wearing my special sweater to kick off this year. It's a black sweater with these little furry, colorful kind of pom-poms on it. And this is continuing our year of living colorfully. And so what we're going to talk about on our first episode today to kick off 2023 is January is Financial Wellness Month. We also are going to focus on social fitness, which you're going to learn about in just a couple of minutes, what that is and why that's important to your overall wellness plan for this year. And then we're also celebrating January 21st, which is National Hugging Day which is going to be part of our Me Time Monday wellness hack. So welcome back to the podcast. And I'm so excited. I've got two really fantastic guests for you today. The first is Mark Schultz, who is a professor at Bryn Mawr University, but he's also the co-director of the Harvard Adult Development Study. Now, this is a research study that's been going on for about 85 years. And Mark and the co-director, Robert Waldinger, have recently come out with a book. In fact, I was so privileged. I'm holding up here. It's called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. And I got an advanced copy of the book because it's just coming out this month. But Mark is also co-author of this book with Robert Waldinger. And we're going to talk with Mark about social fitness and why our social relationships are key to living longer, healthier, and happier. So that's coming right up. And then I've also got Cynthia Hutchins, who is the Director of Financial Gerontology for Bank of America. And Cynthia just oversaw a study with the University of Pennsylvania on how caregivers can enhance their financial well-being around the cost of care and long-term care. And that's going to be a really important interview, I think, for many of you who are looking at your long-term care plans for both yourself and also your older loved ones. So Cynthia's got a lot of really great tips and resources and things to share with us today. And then, as I mentioned, we're going to dig into our caregiver wellness news as well as our well-home design news. We're going to focus a little bit around this element of financial wellness, which of course is part of the seven elements of wellness that are in my new book, which is coming out in just a couple months. I'm very excited, but it's called Me Time Monday, the weekly self-care plan to balance body, brain, and a busy life. And so we'll talk about those seven elements, but financial wellness is one of the key elements. And that's why we're kicking off this year with a focus on that. And then of course, we're going to end the episode, as I mentioned, with our Me Time Monday wellness hack, which is for January 21st, National Hugging Day. And it's around how hugs actually help us be healthier and help us heal. So with that, 
Let's go to my interview with Mark Schultz, the co-author of The Good Life. So I'm really thrilled to be talking to Professor Mark Schultz, who is the Associate Director of the Harvard Development Study and also the co-author of, I'm going to hold it up here, the new book, The Good Life, which actually comes out in January of 2023. So welcome, Mark. We're just really excited to talk to you about the study today and also the book findings. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Sherry. Absolutely. So I wanted to, first of all, just kind of set the context of what we're going to talk about and what the book is all about, which is this longitudinal study that has been going on at Harvard for, I think it's almost 85 or it is the 85th year. Tell us a little bit about how the study got started and what you were investigating that brings us up to today and what you're doing. Sure. Happy to. I mean, it's an incredible study. It started in the 1930s. And it started with two very different groups of people. So 724 original participants and almost two-thirds of the original group included adolescent boys who were growing up in the poorest neighborhoods of Boston. So these were kids that were living in tenement buildings, often without running water or toilets, many of whom had come from immigrant families. I think close to two-thirds came from immigrant families. So they were really facing lots of challenges in life. And then the Remaining one third of the sample literally grew up down the street from these boys in Boston. They were going to Harvard University. They were students at Harvard. And both of those cohorts have been followed throughout their entire lives. Most of the original participants have since died. But this was a study that was designed to understand what kinds of factors led to human flourishing. So the two very different cohorts were flourishing in their own ways. The students at Harvard, maybe it's obvious they had succeeded enough academically, were fortunate enough to be able to go to Harvard for college. The inner city boys were boys that were doing okay despite the challenges that they were facing in their neighborhoods. And they particularly had managed to stay out of trouble. Some of the challenges around delinquency that their peers were encountering on the streets of Boston, these were kids that were doing okay in comparison to those other kids. So the study was fairly unique for the 1930s in not being focused on pathology or psychological problems. It really tried to focus from its very beginning what led to human thriving. And they followed those two cohorts, 724 people throughout their life with intense interviews, with visits to homes. So the study got to meet the parents and got to see the circumstances under which the kids were growing up. Repeated interviews every five to 10 years, questionnaires sent basically every two years. More recently, when myself and my colleague Bob Waldinger became involved in the study, we brought some more modern research methods, brain scans, close observation of family interactions. But the study has continued to try and understand the lived experience of people across that lifetime. And now we're studying the 1,300 children of those original participants, so the daughters and sons of those participants. Fascinating. And if I understand correctly, I think that in the original cohort, you had names that we know like John F. Kennedy Jr. and was it William Bradley or, you know, there were some very high profile names that a lot of people may know. But one of the things that I think is fascinating, and I want you to to speak to this, is that you've got these very disparate groups that you started with. And I know you've added additional, you know, you've added women and other cohorts in over the years. 
but you're finding this theme. And, you know, when we think about what makes us live longer, we know so much more about health and cardiovascular disease and diabetes and how to, you know, good exercise, good nutrition, all those things. And we also know socioeconomic factors can contribute to health and longevity, but you're finding not so fast. There's really one theme, if you will, that really helps us live longer. So tell us a little bit about what that finding is and what that means for all of us. Yeah. So really important to say from the beginning that this was a obviously unique cohort. It was two very different groups of people. And, and that adds to our belief that some of the findings that we have when they hold across those two cohorts might have validity for groups outside of this particular group of 724 originally only men. But the book is really based on more than just the Harvard study. So one of the things that we did before we made any recommendations was to read the whole science about the areas that we were interested, what helps people flourish. And the findings that we highlight, including the finding that I'm about to emphasize, are really findings that we find across gender, across ethnicity, ancestry backgrounds, and importantly, across countries. These are findings that we find in research that takes place all across the world. So what we found when we step back in our own research and when we look at the literature more generally is that it's relationships that keep us healthier and happier through the lifespan, that we sum it up in that sort of simple sentence. And it was quite remarkable to us that relationships would be such a powerful influencer. And this is not to say, Sherry, really important. It's not to say that health habits like exercise and not smoking and not drinking excessively, those things also matter. We found that in our study, as many other studies have found. But what was surprising to us was the power of relationships to predict both well-being, emotional well-being, but also physical health as well. And you tell a lot of the stories of a lot of the the people who were in the study. One that really fascinated me, you had two gentlemen. One, I think he was a lawyer, very successful, very well-renowned and, and recognized in his field. He, you know, had been married and had children. And then you had another gentleman who was, I think he was a professor and he had ambitions to do other things, but he wound up, you know, becoming a teacher. But he had this really robust family life and this wonderful marriage. And he actually appeared to be flourishing more than the person who had all of this recognition and money and and everything else. That's right. And what we do in the book is we use stories to try and illustrate the research. So these were two good examples of highly successful folks. And the one who was happiest was one who had embedded himself in a kind of web of connections, not just with his family, but he was a teacher, as a high school teacher, and he had connections to the students that he worked with that he would remain close to over the years. He was connected to his colleagues. He was a kind of really important part of this community. And this wasn't his aspiration when he went to college and after college, he wanted to be a writer. So for family reasons, he wasn't able to pursue that particular passion. He kind of settled on teaching because it made sense at the time. And he flourished in that context, partly because of the connections that he had both in work and the connections that he was able to maintain with his family as well. Well, and I think, you know, one of the points that you make in the book is that having, as you said, it isn't just one relationship, obviously, it's these connections that we have, but having a, a really solid, what you would call good marriage is is one of the keys. And one of the questions I want to ask you about that is, what about people who are widowed or divorced or solo agers like me who have never been married? What is our hopeful you know, view of these types of relationships? How do we build similar things that what you would have in a marriage that are going to help us thrive? 
Yeah. So the good life isn't about only intimate connections. It's really about connections across the kinds of social world that we have. And certainly having an intimate connection, that's a good intimate connection, satisfying the ability to solve conflict, to help each other grow. That's a wonderful resource to have. But we also found people that didn't have an intimate relationship that went through life solo or mostly on their own in terms of intimacy, but were connected with people through friendships, through relatives that were important to them. It could be siblings, it could be cousins. So it's not just the role of a central or intimate relationship that's critical to our well-being and to helping us flourish. And in fact, for people who are married, it's often important the relationships that they have outside of that marriage as well that are so critical. Relationships have the capacity to give us so many wonderful things. It's really a kind of magic pill that helps us keep our health and, and flourish that it's almost unrealistic to expect that we can get everything from one person, that many of us get different things from different people in our social network. And the kinds of things that I'm talking about are people that you might be friendly with because they bring joy to your life and you have fun. They help you laugh when you're together. People who are really good at problem solving when you face a challenge in life. People that know stuff that's different than you might know that might help you get through a particular dilemma or a challenge that you're having at work. The relationships serve many, many functions, and many of us are able to get those functions across more than one person. When we invest only in one person, we're lucky in some ways that we can get that from that one person, but it's rare, I think, that people do. Yeah, and I'm glad to hear you say that, <laughs> but you're right. It's that, I think you call it social fitness, actually, in the book. We know with our older population, and again, going back to maybe either being divorced or particularly being widowed, a lot of our older adults are are suffering from loneliness and so, so, social isolation. There's so much attention now in healthcare on that. And so we know there's more of these casual relationships, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that, because sometimes with older adults who are living alone, you know, they see the mailman, or they go to the grocery store, or maybe, you know, go to the hairdresser or whatever, but those are really the only connections that they may have. So talk a little bit about that, and I know there's a lot of attention on this lately, so what can we do to help them thrive? So the first thing I'd like to talk about is a kind of recognition that the number of people that you see on a daily basis or that you're around is different than the experience one might have if they're lonely or feel connected. So a sense of loneliness is a kind of subjective sense that there's no one out there that cares about me or notices me. So college students, it turns out, have high levels of loneliness, even though they're surrounded by thousands of people like them engaged in similar activities. It's kind of an amazing thing, but it also suggests how challenging this issue of connection is. So for older adults, we do worry about physical isolation. So having those connections and taking advantage of the opportunities when they come really important. So a connection with a mailman is great, the person who delivers your mail. But we often find these really interesting stories of serendipity, going out to the market and meeting someone in the market because someone says, do you know anything about how to figure out whether this melon is ripe or not? And the older person says, well, yeah, I actually love melons. Here's what I do. And then there's the kind of connection that develops from that. So part of social fitness 
is really optimizing those chance encounters. And that means being present, being open to the opportunity that you might learn something from someone who maybe looks different, comes from a different place, and importantly, is at a different life stage. So it's being open to those connections. I think for older people also, because of the risk of isolation, engaging in activities is an important source of connection and the possibility of reducing any sense of loneliness. And those could be activities, could be shared walks or a card game or going into a senior center and, and having lunch there with other folks. So there are all sorts of ways that we can become engaged, but it means being more proactive. So we use the idea of social fitness because we want to use the metaphor of physical fitness that if we don't do it, our social skills, our social connections will wither and we can't take them for granted. We need to continue to build them. And obviously, family is another important source of connection. And just because relationships have waned to a certain extent doesn't mean they can't be renewed. I don't know if this is the longest longitudinal study that's ever been done out there, but it seems like it is. And the fact that you're now into second generations of these original cohorts that you had that you studied is fascinating. One question I have is so much of our lives have changed, particularly with technology. I mean, you know, so many people are immersed in social media and that becomes now their new friends, I guess. And, you know, the fact that maybe families don't live as close, you know, that we're across the country, maybe from each other. How are those factors playing out now in the research that you're doing more recently? Yeah. So two things I want to say. One of the things that's amazing about following people across this sort of 85-year period of time is that we recognize that some things aren't as different as we think they are. So there were new technologies introduced to people who were born in the 1910s and 1920s, phones, televisions, that really changed the way that they lived and the connections they had with others. The way we work has also changed quite dramatically. So one of the things that I feel quite privileged about being part of the study and the students who work with me learn so much by looking at the experience of people from a time that feels or looks so different, there are some commonalities. So TVs coming into living rooms, that was a big deal for people and the ways in which they intruded on the family life, having a telephone ring in a home. Again, these kinds of intrusions that feel so unique to our world. In some ways, we encountered them before. Having said that, I think there are some unique things about the new technologies and what they mean. And we're interested in this. So one of the things that we're studying with this cohort of 1,300 folks that are the children of the original participants is they range in age. On average, they're close to my age, so close to about 60 years of age. But they range quite dramatically from 25 all the way up into their 80s and 90s. And we're interested in how the time at which they were born and they they had their sort of critical rearing years, how much their digital world was part of that rearing and experience, how much they were socialized in the digital world or became digital participants later in life. Because we think intuitively that that could make a difference. And I'm going to give you just one example. If we think about young people today, particularly during a pandemic, who are dependent on their phones for communication with key people in their life, parents, friends in particular, those kinds of conversations have a kind of temporal, a kind of time element to it that's very different than in-person, real-time interactions. You can text someone and that person can take a while to respond. They can respond with emojis as opposed to facial expressions. So we think that there's a, a way in which being reared 
to socialize, to learn how to connect with others in the context of this technology revolution probably has some impact on our capacity to regulate our emotions and close relationships, to confront challenges and differences of opinion. And it's been made more acute, this worry, by the pandemic, because many of us haven't spent as much time with others in real time in the last three years as we typically do. Well, and I wondered if it also has to do, you mentioned the in-person being so critical, that oxytocin release that we get, that bonding hormone that we get from being in person, maybe hugging, or we don't get that through the smartphone and the texts and all of that. So I think that's absolutely right, that that we talk about things being more real-like. So we're talking over a Zoom connection now, and I can see you, and I can see your expressions, but I don't get to see your whole body, and I don't get to smell what it's like to be in the room with you, and we don't get to match in the same way our kind of body language that people often do when they're together. So one of the important questions, I think, for scientists to look at is, Things like oxytocin, a release of a hormone that brings us closer together. How much does it limit our normal reactions that create bonds by having some of the important areas of signaling connection absent when we get off of real-time connections? Really important question. Right. One question I, I didn't put forward to you before we talked, and I'm just curious, are you seeing any connections between the original cohort who had very strong relationships, marriages, family life, let's say, and now the second generation, do they tend to mirror their parents? Is there any correlation that that's going to flow through the genes, if you will, through the ancestry of families? Yeah. So one of the things that we're excited about is the ability to answer questions like that. So we've followed their parents very closely for 80 plus years, and now we're following their children. And we ask the children questions like, what was it like growing up in your home? What were your parents like? And they tell us their story of what it might be like. But we also have data about what it was like because we followed the parents forward in time. And there are very few studies that have that. So some of our current research focus is trying to reconcile my retrospective view of what it might have been like to grow up in my family with the view that we had contemporaneously as I was growing up, if I were a participant. And we're really interested in these, what we call transgenerational or intergenerational influences. We are beginning to see some evidence, but this is an active area of interest. And it's not just genes. That's, of course, something that we're interested in, other groups are interested in. But it's the experiences that we have, particularly when we're young in critical periods of development that we often take with us. I'm going to give you one example, Sherry, that we already know. So if we look at the quality of connections that our original participants had with their parents when they were in their childhood, and then we look forward 60, 70 years to the nature of their connections that they have with intimate others later in life. So these are folks who were in marriage or marriage-like relationships. We find a connection that people who grew up in warmer, more consistent, more structured homes have better connections to their partners 60, 70 years later. So that's remarkable across six decades of time. It could be partly genetics, but we think it's also the experience that you have teaches you something about how to navigate close relationships, teaches us how to regulate emotions in those relationships, how to be vulnerable, all of those things. And I also want to say, just because I think it's really important to put this in context, there is a connection, which is amazing across six or seven decades. But the connection isn't that strong. And there's a kind of hopeful message in there for those folks who have grown up in 
homes that are less than ideal. They didn't feel supported or they weren't treated well. What it means is that your childhood experience does have an impact on your later experience, but it's not destiny. It's not your fate. That there are many things that intervene that can shape what your experiences will be later in life. I like that. I love that hopeful message for for all of us. Was there anything that surprised you in any of the data or the results that you're seeing? Yeah, so I'll give you two examples. One is a big one. So we weren't that surprised that relationships were critical to our happiness, to our emotional well-being. There's a lot of ancient wisdom about the importance of relationships. And intuitively, as clinical psychologists, as people that worked with a number of people over the years, we know relationships are important. What surprised us 25 years ago, 20 years ago, was the consistent connection between relationships and physical health and even brain health, that there's a way in which we're learning and we're learning more and more about how it happens, that relationships literally get under our skin, into our bodies and affect our bodies and our brains in ways that are quite important. So the specific example that I'll give you, which was really surprising to us, is because we follow people again across these eight decades, we're able to trace people's marital satisfaction across their lifespan, not ask them to remember what it was like, but we ask them periodically to report to us on how satisfied they were in their marriages. And we get, maybe not surprising, we got this sort of U-shaped curve of satisfaction. So people are happy when they get married, marital satisfaction tends to decline as people have children, and then it begins to recover. And later in life, for those who remain married, there's often an increase in satisfaction. We also found if we looked at the age of their children, that there's a kind of bump that couples get when their youngest child turns 18. So that would be the proverbial leaving the nest bump. That bump varies across people, how big it is. It's a bump up in marital satisfaction. And both the depth of that U, so how deeply down your marital satisfaction goes, and the size of the bump predict when our participants die. So that's an indication, incredible indication about how the quality of relationships may shape your longevity. So if I interpret that correctly, were the parents in this situation happier when the kids were 18 and maybe leaving the nest? <laughs> yeah. So what, what happened is that people experienced normatively across the group, it was kind of normal to experience an increase in marital satisfaction. It varied across people how big that increase in marital satisfaction was when the last kid left the nest. And it looks like the couples that were able to lean into each other to reclaim parts of their relationship that maybe had been lost as they were rearing kids, common to neglect the relationship at that point, those folks had some benefits that accrued over time. And one of those benefits is it looks like they live longer. Wow. So maybe that's a message to our younger generations, you know, that are living at home until 30, you know, maybe you want to give mom and dad a break and let them you know, <laughs> rekindle some of that uh, passion or whatever that may have been missing. It's really interesting because I think this study in particular really did usher in this era of social determinants of health, which is what we're talking about in healthcare so often. Are there any other comments or any messages out there to people? You know, a lot of the audience that I write for is over over the age of 50, we're looking for those hopeful threads of what maybe the next 50 years is going to look like. What would be the message or the over overarching theme that you're seeing for people who are older? Yeah. So I, I think one of the other important findings from our study is the idea that things don't always stay the same, that people change. 
And it means that there's, again, a kind of story of, of optimism and hope here. So we in the book talk about people who, one person in particular, this is a man who was lonely for most of his adult life. He was in a marriage that wasn't a fulfilling marriage for him. He felt quite alone, actually, in that relationship. And he seemed to be depressed for most of his adult life. When it came time for him to retire, he had some health issues and he loved his work. That was one of the true sources of pleasure for him. It was a hard struggle for him. And because of the health problems, he was encouraged to try and exercise more. So he joined a gym and he went to the gym and he found that he saw the same people every day at the gym. And in addition to improving his physical fitness, he started having connections that he had never had as an adult. He made friends. And some of the people he found at the gym weren't exactly his age, but they were interested in old movies. And that was a thing that he was both interested in and knew a lot about. And people enjoyed going to the movies with him to hear what he knew about movies. So this is a story about renewal. This person was in his late 60s, early 70s when this happened. And from that period onward, because we followed him into his 80s, he lived a life that was filled with connections that he hadn't had for 60 years. So I think the important message here is that lives change more than we think they do. And sometimes because of serendipity, sometimes because of intention, people are able to turn around parts of their lives that they're not happy with, that they're able to thrive in new ways, sometimes with transitions, sometimes because of serendipity. So I think these stories from the original participants, 724 of them, it's a story of hope that we all can blossom no matter what our lot in life is, no matter where we are in life as well. I love that. And I think that was even one of the chapters in the book is that happiness can really begin at any age if you feel like you don't have happiness right now in your life. So, well, it's been fantastic talking to you, Mark. Thanks so much. And again, thank you for the advanced copy of the book. I just absolutely loved it. And I know others will as well. So we really appreciate you being on with us today and sharing all of these wonderful insights. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for having me, Sherry. So wasn't that a great interview with Mark Schultz? I think it's so important for us to really focus on social wellness or as, as Mark and his co-director are calling it, social fitness. It's just really, really important. And being socially isolated and lonely is something that we see with a lot of our older adults, particularly those who may be living alone. So if you've got a parent or a grandparent who may be living alone and they aren't maybe as socially active as they used to be, check out our season two, episode 15 with Lawrence Kosick, who is the CEO and founder of Get Set Up, because not only is it a great online platform where older adults can learn new things, whether it's a new language or a new cooking recipe or you know, how to play pickleball or whatever it is, but also it's a social setting. It's where a lot of the people who go onto that platform who are older are connecting with other people around things that they love to do. And so it's a really great kind of social outlet as well. So that's, that's a really great episode that we did with Get Set Up and with Lawrence. And so I want to turn to caregiver wellness news. The message for family caregivers is don't abandon your social connections. We know that getting a chance to get a break from our caregiving duties and spend some time with other family or friends or whatever it is, or just get some me time is so important. And the social connections and the social health that we have and social wellness is really, really critical. We have to have a plan. So in my new book, which is called Me Time Monday, I mentioned Me Time Monday, this is the weekly self-care plan 
for Better Body Brain and a Busy Life. It's really dedicated to family caregivers. And in the book, I talk about something called the social convoy model, which was actually developed by a researcher, Tony Antonucci. And what she found is that we can construct a graphic that helps us really visualize who is in our our circle of friends. You know, the, the ones that are definitely there that have our back, maybe the ones that are you know, they're, they're good to call for, for here and now and, and, you know, they can help out. And then the ones that are a little bit more on the fringe, maybe they don't live as close and, you know, it's just a great phone call every now and then or whatever it is. But having that visual display of your social convoy model, I think really helps keep us in touch with the people we haven't maybe talked to in a while, you know, how important they are to us. And it's just a really great graphic. So it's that's part of the book. I'll also have some information on Caregiving Club for you around that. But look for that coming out in my new book. The other thing is I mentioned, you know, January is Financial Wellness Month. And we're going to talk to Cynthia Hutchins of Bank in America in just a couple of minutes. But I wanted to just share with you some of the latest news out there. So again, financial wellness is part of our seven elements of wellness. Social wellness is one. We just heard from Mark about that. Financial wellness, we're going to hear about in a minute from Cindy. But 60% of family caregivers in a survey that was done a couple of years ago said they really want financial help, particularly around creating these long-term care plans, both for ourselves, but also for older loved ones, You know, really knowing what we should understand, what we should look for, how do we plan ahead as families. And so six out of 10 family caregivers are saying, yes, I definitely need that help. So obviously, there's a lot of really great financial advisors out there. There's now certifications that a lot of these advisors can get to actually understand long-term care, living longer, staying in our homes longer, all of these things that are happening that didn't happen 20, 30, 40 years ago. And Cynthia is and Cindy is one of those people. She's a financial gerontologist. So it means she's really got a grounding and a background in what that's all about. But you know, another survey that actually came out from the Stanford Longevity Center that does a lot of look at living longer and retirement, they found that only one in 10 older adults are really comfortable with their financial, where they're at, you know, financial health right now, right now, financial wellness. About half of those in their recent study said that they they really feel a little bit fragile. They don't feel that they've probably saved enough, which isn't a big, huge surprise because the boomers, again, have really not saved enough. I think on average, the statistic is that boomers have saved about $162,000. But when you think about the costs of even just the basics, which are like assisted living, assisted living is going to cost anywhere between you know $48,000 and $60,000 a year. So if you're talking about a, an average three-year stay, you know, when you would go into assisted living, that's, you know, that's anywhere from $150,000 to $180,000. Well, if you've only got $162,000, you got a little bit of a deficit there. And of course, those costs go up as you look at something like nursing home costs, which can be $98,000 a year. So times three is closer to maybe, you know, 300000 or over $300,000. Same thing with memory care, which is for those who have dementia or Alzheimer's, that's more costly than just your average assisted living. So obviously the boomers haven't done a great job saving, which is why we're all working longer, probably putting off tapping into our social security money. And hopefully it'll be there by the time we do that. And, you know, there's all kinds of questions about what's going on in Washington these days. But I think it's really important that we recognize that we do need some professional help. And I'm going to have some resources on our episode guide pages. I mentioned 
financial gerontologists like Cindy are great. Have you ask your financial advisor if maybe they've gone through a certification so that they do really understand the kinds of things and information that you're looking for. Another great resource for you is an elder law attorney. Now, again, these are attorneys. They're not just estate attorneys. They have been given a certification and a training in longevity and living longer. They know about Medicare, Medicaid, all the rules with that, long-term care insurance and all that. One of the elder law attorneys that I talked to for my my first book, which was a cast of caregivers, told me that on average, families come to him about three to five years too late when he could have saved them up to a half million dollars. I mean, that's so painful to think about, but you really need an expert to help guide you because, you, you know, we can't do it ourselves. It's too hard for us to become experts at the law and the financial navigation that you have to have to get through all of the healthcare issues and questions, all the long-term care questions and, and issues and all of these other things that may come up. And so having these experts is really, really critical. So I'm going to have a list of those. I'm also going to have a list of some other things that kind of deal with financial services. You know, we talked to Liz Lowy on season two last year. She's an elder law attorney. She is actually the co-founder of a company called Eversafe. So that's financial fraud and identity theft for our older adults. Great resource there. LifeSite, another really great company that helps families capture all of the important paperwork. So whether it's the legal documentation, the financial documentation, home title deeds, all these are the things that you know you want to be able to put your, your hands on if you're helping out an older loved one. Well, they capture all of that in a really secure cloud-based service that has, you know, kind of like military-grade security, but then you give access to whomever you need to, but that's all captured in the cloud. So that's another great service. I'm going to have all of these listed. You can check them out, but they're really great resources out there now, I think, to help us as family caregivers with this whole financial planning, financial documentation issue that we face when, again, when we go into caring for older loved ones. And it's just really important to connect you with some of those resources and to know some of the things that you might be encountering. There's also really great resources from the National Council on Aging. They have something called Benefits Checkup, which is a really great calculator to help you find the government agencies and, and resources that'll help you save some of that money we were talking about. The Elder Care Locator, which is managed by U.S. Aging, is another really great resource. So again, I'm going to have all of these things up on the episode guide page for you. So since we're talking about financial wellness, I've got the expert with me. Cindy Hutchins is a great colleague. We're both actually graduates of the USC Gerontology School, so we're really proud about that. And I've spoken to her before, but this is really timely because Bank of America just came out with this new report that she's going to tell us about. So with that, here's my interview with Cynthia Hutchins, the Director of Financial Gerontology with Bank of America. So I'm really thrilled to have our special guest on this episode, who is Cynthia Hutchins, the Director of Financial Gerontology for Bank of America. And Cindy and I actually met a few months ago when I did a project with Georgetown University with one of the interns in the gerontology master's program there. And we interviewed Cindy about being one of the first financial gerontologists in the country. And if you're interested in what financial gerontology is about, I really advise you to go and check out our Caregiving Club YouTube channel and look at that interview with Cindy. It's really fascinating. And she really explains a lot about gerontology can be 
kind of repurposed in a lot of different careers and financial gerontology is certainly one of them. So Cindy, welcome to Caregiving Club on Air. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back and to talk to you. And we always ask our guests, first question is, where are we talking to you from today? I am uh, in my home in Bel Air, Maryland. Beautiful. And and are you having a nice winter? <laughs> you know, do you have some beautiful snow out yet? Or <laughs> so far, it's, it's gosh, it's like 55 degrees here today. It's oh, that sounds nice. I could do that. I, I would actually be able to survive that. <laughs> anyway, it's great to have you on the podcast today because this is such an important topic. And obviously, we are talking about financial gerontology and caregiving. And January is Financial Wellness Month. So we thought it was a perfect time to have you on the program. And I wanted to start with, you were one of the first financial gerontologists that I was aware of. I think you were one of the first in the country. And so you've really seen some trends and some things that have maybe been changing with family caregivers really understanding costs of care. Just tell us a little bit about what your experience has been so far in helping to support family caregivers with the cost burdens that often come with caregiving. That's a great question because, first of all, in the financial services industry, we're all about advising people because they're living longer, how to plan for that in the different stages of what used to be just a one-stage retirement. Now I would say there's several stages of retirement. Caregiving is certainly what I would call a life stage because it's likely that we are going to become caregivers at some point. And it's also likely that we'll need care at some point. Now, one of the trends that I've seen is that more and more people are becoming aware of that fact. However, there is still a very large gap between the number of people that will need care and the number of people that think they'll need care. So that's the first thing I would tell you, that seven out of 10 are going to need it, four out of 10 believe that they're going to need it. So we have to do a better job in our industry of convincing people that they're going to likely live long enough to need care at some point in their older lives. But I will tell you, one of the trends is that in financial planning, becoming a caregiver or becoming a care recipient is becoming more and more front and center with financial advisors as they're doing their planning because they recognize that if you don't plan for care in your later years, it can totally derail your retirement plan because it could be an unforeseen event, a crisis, or it could just be that you live longer than you think you're going to live and you need care. And that sucks up a lot of money out of what you had originally planned to use for your day-to-day living expenses and discretionary spending. Yeah, and I think I think it's wonderful to see that there is kind of that proactive side from financial advisors and what organizations like Bank of America are doing to really ask the questions because again, sometimes we don't naturally think about it and yet when we get prompted all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I might be caring for mom or dad or grandparents or whatever or, you know, as you said, planning for yourself. You know, I think one of the big things I've seen is that we think about caregiving as being more of a time consuming, you know, it's more of the physical being there and taking care or taking mom or dad to the doctors or whatever. We don't think about the financial side until the crisis hits. And then often it's, it's very late. What are the things that you feel with a lot of the clients that you've had, do they understand things like long-term care costs or where's the knowledge gap? Where do you feel 
the big costs are when it comes to caregiving that people should be thinking about? So first I'll, I'll tell you that there are two types of care around finances that most people don't think about. One is that you become a financial coordinator for another person where you're taking over the financial life of that person. You're paying the bills, you're managing the checking account and bringing in the income streams. You might even be working hand in hand with a financial advisor to manage investments. And that's a really, really big job. So that's one aspect of financial caregiving that is largely ignored and or overlooked until you have to take it on. The other side would be a financial contributor. And that's someone who's actually taking money out of their own pocket to pay for the care of another person. The average caregiver who is financially contributing to someone else's care pays $7,000 a year out of pocket. If that care recipient is a dementia or Alzheimer's patient, that number can go up by double or even two and a half times. So it can be a huge financial burden. So for people who are preparing to be a caregiver, when you're doing your planning, you need to factor that in to your own retirement plans. We all want to do what we can for those that we love, but we can't do it to the detriment of our own retirement because then we're passing a burden on to our own children. So we want to make sure that we think about that. In terms of long-term care, most people believe that they are going to count on family members for care. And so they're not thinking so much about the cost of having someone come into their home to care for them. And most people, by the way, want to age in place. So that's a big cost to have that daily care come in to help you with just activities of daily living. And if you need more care than that, it's certainly going to cost more. They are thinking about long-term care in terms of assisted living or nursing home, but they're not taking into account that any care that you need on a daily basis to help you with those activities of daily living is considered long-term care. So our burden is to, number one, educate them on the different insurance products that are out there to help them to pay for their own care as they age, but also to make it clear that your employee benefits can make a very large contribution to your care plan. You have HSAs, health savings accounts, um, that if you can afford to contribute to them and not use the money currently, you can use that to pay for long-term care in your later years. So that's one big one. And many companies offer different caregiver benefits that can really help to mitigate the cost of paying for someone else's care. So for instance, they may offer emergency backup care that you can use for your mother that you're helping take care of, those types of things. Yeah, and you make such a really a great point that employers really are taking, you know, look and have been for a while at caregiving and what their workforce is really challenged with. And there are great resources out there. We often forget, right? We don't think about checking in with the HR or checking out those benefits. So that's a great point. And also a great point you made is that while we may know a little bit about the crisis, you know, okay, yes, mom has to go into a nursing home or she needs memory care or whatever it is. We don't think about all those years leading up to maybe that point where we're helping out and contributing. So great, really great points. Now you just collaborated on a research study with the University of Pennsylvania. I think it was with the nursing department there. And tell us a little bit about what the results were of that report. What were you looking at and what did you find? So we did do a paper with the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. It was basically focused on 
working caregivers and how employers can help their working caregivers and how it can be a mutually beneficial relationship. So the paper is titled A Path to Wellness for um, Financial Caregivers. Cindy, can we share that with our audience? Can I put a link to that? Yeah, I I have an external link. I'll send it over to you and you can share. That'd be great. So when we think about this, the paper was fascinating because first of all, employers need to be educated a little bit. Well, let me start by saying that more and more employers are starting to pay attention to this and they're starting to recognize that caregiver benefits can be very valuable in increasing productivity, decreasing absenteeism, increasing presenteeism, attracting and retaining talent because people are looking at these benefits. It's become much more than just salary and healthcare benefits that people are looking at. And we're in a war for talent right now. So that's a really important one. It can also, offering these this support to caregivers also can increase morale, which is really, really important in the workplace. So they're looking at providing these types of benefits, things like emergency backup care, as I mentioned, consultation with a geriatric care manager, so that I know here at the bank, we offer six hours of consultation fully paid for by the bank for any family member that you're caring for that might need some kind of evaluation. So there are a lot of things that employers can be doing. And what they're finding, you know, when we think about the trends that are happening, more and more of care is shifting to the home. More people are working from home or needing flexible work hours. They're demanding in the workplace that employers support them in ways that we never would have thought of 20 years ago, right? So, and there are things that employers can be doing that you'll have to put some money up to do it. But there are other things that employers can be doing that really don't cost anything or next to nothing. Things like employee networks. We have a network here at the firm, the Parents and Caregivers Network, and our membership is 20,000 strong. And we have other networks for other cohorts, but I bring that up because that's a very valuable benefit to a workforce that really doesn't cost anything and that employers are are starting to gravitate towards. They're they're starting to offer flexibility and you can work a couple of days at home or you can have flex time where you uh, don't have to be there nine to five. You can come in 12 to eight, whatever it might be. They're starting to pay attention to when they schedule meetings. Something as simple as it's a lot easier for a working caregiver to make a meeting that is not first thing in the morning, right? When she's trying to get her kids to school and care for mom or dad. So, you know, all of those types of things that that really don't cost a lot on the employer end are reaping huge benefits and employers are starting to recognize this. They're also starting to take all of the benefits that traditionally were reserved for new parents, Now, when we think about in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you had a lot of two-income families that were trying to balance that raising small children and working. Now it's kind of shifted, right? Now they're trying to balance caring for mom or dad and working and maybe even still caring for their children as well. So we have taken many of the benefits that were traditionally reserved for that cohort and converted them to be applicable to caregivers. And so those types of benefits are things that employers are looking at. And what we found is that they're finding that this isn't just something that you do because it benefits employees or because it's the right thing to do. It's becoming a business imperative. And 
employers are starting to recognize that. And so I think that the working caregiver, as they look into the future, will find that they're getting a lot more support than what they're getting right now in this moment. Yeah, such great points and kudos to Bank of America for providing that care manager support. You know, a lot of people don't realize what care managers can do, but they're such great experts at helping you put a plan together. They really do an assessment. You can take a look at what the situation is with your loved one, put a plan together, and then also maybe even help to connect you to some of those community services or ways to save money as you were talking about all of the out-of-pocket costs. Yeah, the research and referral is really important, particularly if you're a long-distance caregiver. So I can live here in Maryland. My mom can be in Ohio, and I can communicate through a geriatric care manager and make sure that she's safe and well taken care of. And that's that's really important. Yeah, I think one of the other things that you and I have talked about before that's fascinating, too, and when we're talking about workplaces, is that, you know, we typically think of caregiving happening maybe a little bit later in life, you know, when we're in 40s, maybe 50s, early 60s or whatever. And that's the traditional view and maybe even still partially the average. But we know 24% of millennials are engaged in caregiving for a parent or grandparent. We even see now numbers rising in the youngest Gen Z generation. And so it's really cutting across all age groups. How, from a financial planning and advisement standpoint, how do we encourage younger generations who may not yet be engaged, but could very quickly get involved in caregiving? How do we get people to plan ahead a little bit more for something that really seems kind of far out in the future or not not even maybe something they're thinking they may be doing? How do you do that? Yeah, here again, this is something that can come from the employer. And I think that more and more 401k providers are working with employers to provide that kind of support and education so that those younger workers can understand that you really now have to kind of segment your savings, right? So your 401k is one way to save for retirement. But if you want to do everything in the most tax efficient way and take advantage of tax deferred growth and all of those sorts of things, the employer is offering 401k, 403b, whatever it might be. They're offering HSAs, as I mentioned, or FSAs, or life insurance, or annuities. You know, there's a lot of variation now in what what employers are offering in their employee benefit programs. So between offering those sorts of things and educating on those sorts of things, I think that's number one. I will tell you that most people who start to, to talk about caregiving for themselves or care receiving care for themselves or how they want to be taken care of, Most people come to that conversation because they've had an experience caregiving themselves, and it's usually for mom and dad. So something as simple as we have a resource we call the family album, and this is a document that just lists everything you can possibly think of that in the event of a crisis, someone, one of your loved ones might need to get their hands on things like where's the deed to the house, the title to the car, where do you get your prescriptions filled, what's your computer password, all of these things. And so one of the first things that people can start doing, whether they're preparing for care or they're just preparing for an unforeseen life event or just thinking ahead, is document where all of these things are in your family album and let one person that you trust, maybe two that you trust, just know where that document is so that in the event that they need it, they can access it and get to the things that they need to get to. 
Now, is that a service, Cindy, that you get through your employer through Bank of America, or is it something on the outside that you have it's to sign up for? It's just a document. It's like a booklet. It's also available as an editable PDF. It's our resource, but it's available to the public. And you just can print it out and work on it as you please. It's 48 pages long. So you might want to work on it on a computer. (laughs) And you definitely don't want to try to do it all at one time. But it's available to the public. And it's a great way to, to just get people to start thinking about it and adding to it. You know, it's the millennials, the Gen Zs. They may not have a lot of the things that are listed in there. But as life happens, then, you know, they can just edit it and they can keep it going and 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 keep it up to date. And it's a, it's a great resource. And I think that's your starting point. Just take a look at, at what your world looks like on paper. And then you can start to plan where this tranche of money is going to go and that tranche of money is going to go. And I've got $200 a month that I can save. Where should I put it? And you can talk to an advisor and, and get some advice about that. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think even documents like you were talking about help also help us have those conversations within families that we don't often have, but you're right. I mean, things can change, but if you start, at least you're on a pathway for having a little bit of planning ahead of whatever crisis or whatever might happen. You know, I could talk to you all day about all this great stuff, but is there anything else that you feel is really important for our listeners to think about, particularly on the financial side of caregiving? What should they be planning for? What should they be thinking about or any other resources that you feel would help them? There's a couple of things. First is I always say plan early and often. Now, what does that mean, right? It means don't put off planning for caregiving, planning for anything. So plan early and often. Your priorities are going to change as you move through your life course. So today you may be planning to buy a house, but before you know it, you're going to be planning for retirement. And in between, there's an awful lot of contingencies that you have to plan for. Caregiving is one of them. Or having a sudden crisis that you may need care for a temporary or permanent period of time. So those are the types of things. And and when I say, so that's plan early. When I say plan often is go back and revisit it because your life course is dynamic and so is everybody else's that's involved in your care. And so you want to sit down, you want to have that family meeting. Let's say you're planning for care for your parents. All of you sit down together. All the siblings should be involved because, you know, everybody is affected. And then you get your wishes out on the table for your own care, if you are the care recipient, and then you get expectations out on the table. What do you expect of each of those people sitting around the table for your care? And then each of the people sitting around the table can tell you what they expect of each other and what they can and cannot do. So what they expect for themselves. And that's how you just start the conversation. And that's dynamic as well. So you have to you have to check in and make sure that it's getting done the way mom and dad want it. Or if a life situation changes, it may be that the daughter who lives down the street and just got married can check in on mom and dad on a daily basis. But then all of a sudden now she's pregnant and expecting her first child. So that's a whole different change. And she's not likely to be able to maintain checking in on mom and dad every day once that baby comes. So then you have to regroup and think about how needs are changing and how you can cover that. You want to make sure that you're planning for contingencies, whether it be caregiving or anything else. 
You want to make sure that you're thinking about the effect that caregiving can have on your financial future. The number one reason why people leave their job sooner than expected is an illness, and it might not be their own. And so you have to think about the effect. You mentioned that, you know, when we think about traditional caregivers, they're in their 40s, their 50s, their 60s. Well, think about that from an earnings perspective. Chances are they're in their top earnings years. If they have to leave their job sooner than they expect in those top earnings years, that has an effect on Social Security. It has an effect on pensions. So all of those contingencies have to be considered. It's a lot, I know, but all of it has to be considered. And then the final thing that I would say is make sure if you're doing a written financial plan, which I fully suggest you do, make sure that you're including the cost of your care or the cost of providing care to someone else in that retirement plan and talk with your financial advisor about it. As I mentioned before, it's a life stage. And so just like you plan for parenthood, you have to plan for caregiving, retirement, end of life and legacy. It all goes together in a continuous plan. And you want to make sure that you're accounting for all of it. Great advice. And as you said, you know, we're getting these bonus years, 20 or 30 extra bonus years we didn't maybe have 50 or 100 years ago. I just read an article that said there was a family in Scotland where six generations in the same family are alive at the same time. I mean, that, you know, that never happened before. At one time we had five and yeah. uh, we <laughs> oh really impressed with ourselves. Those are, those are great numbers. But as you said, not all those years are going to be quality of life. We may need more help, more support, more care, whatever it is. So it really is a reality. I think that we all have to face this longevity brings with it all these new conversations and planning. So Cindy, it was great to have you on the podcast and thank you so much. And we'll have links to some of the resources and the study and things that you did. If there's any other links that you want us to post, just let us know. But it was great having you on um, the podcast today. So thank you so much for your wonderful expert insights. Oh, my pleasure, Sherry. I just made a note to send you the link to the family album. I'll get that over to you as soon as I can locate it. And thanks again for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So wasn't that just a really great wealth of information from Cindy of Bank of America? Talk about, you know, financial wellness month and wealth of information. It was just really great. And again, I'm going to have links to some of the things that Cindy referenced on the episode guide page so you can check that out. So moving now into well-home design news, we're still focused around this whole topic of financial wellness in our homes. And we know that ARP did a survey that said eight in 10 adults over the age of 65 want to stay in their homes as long as possible. Okay, that's great. How do we do that though? Because we know that as we get older, we're going to have issues with eyesight and hearing and mobility, and we want to prevent the falls that we know can be so risky and so dangerous as we get older with broken bones, broken hips, all of those other things. So there's a portion of my book where I talk about creating a forever home, lifetime, well-designed home plan. And really what it is, is, you know, if you can make it to about 50 in your home ownership and you're age 50, you really should then put together a plan that every five to 10 years, you're going to enhance and modify something that's going to help you live in that home longer. And that way, 
everything doesn't pile in on you at once. You don't turn 75 and say, oh my gosh, we have to redo all of this th- these things. And they're kind of some simple things and easy, easy things that can be done that actually help us live better today. It doesn't have to really be related to aging. I mean, all of us love the shelves that you can pull out or that pull down. We need to be careful in the bathroom. 80% of falls in the home happen in the bathroom to people of any age. So I think there's some things that we can look at and there's so many great, beautiful products out there now that if we can come up with a plan, it'll kind of ease our way into making some of these expenses. I just went through something recently where on my garage door, I had to replace the motor and the spring and the whole thing. And listen, I made it almost 24 years, so that's pretty good. Usually they they wear out after about 15 years, so I feel like I got a lot of bonus years. But that's just something that we should have on our list. You know, if you happen to live in a home where you have an automatic garage door, these are the types of things we just need to plan for. So that's kind of part of my book. Again, we're going to have some templates and worksheets and things on the website when the book launches to make it easy for you also to download these and help you out. But certainly we know that the cost of modifying our home can range. You also want to bring in an expert who really understands universal design and ADA, which is the American Disabilities Act compliance, because that also relates to getting older, just having things be a little bit easier and more accessible. And by the way, we did a really great interview with Rosemary Rossetti, who created the first universal design living lab, which is her home in Ohio. And that was on season two. So it was last year's podcast. I think it was, it may have been the same episode as Lawrence Kosick. It may have been episode 15, but check that out because Rosemary is just a perfect expert in this area. And she takes us through a lot of ideas and things to do to modify our homes and and shows us. We have some visual images of her home, which is absolutely beautiful in Ohio. And she talks about how, you know, you can really spread these things out over a few years so that the cost is not too bad. So with that, we're now going to go into our Me Time Monday wellness hack. And as I said, we're going to celebrate January 21st, National Hugging Day. Hugs and physical touch are really vital to our ability to survive as humans. I mean, we are social animals. And so when we think about hugs, they're very healthful and they're very healing. And unfortunately, we went through this whole period during the pandemic where there were no hugs going on and we want to get back to what's really important. And so listen to our Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. You're going to learn a little bit more about the oxytocin release and the physical health of hugging for National Hugging Day. Welcome to the Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. For this episode, we are celebrating January 21st, which is International Hugging Day. Let us tell you how hugs are beneficial for both physical and mental health and necessary for human survival. During the global COVID-19 pandemic, social distancing for safety meant no more hugs that we needed for our emotional and physical health. People became isolated and lonely without human contact. This is because humans are social animals. We have only survived hundreds of thousands of years because we form tribes with those we trust. Part of that trust comes from the oxytocin release we get with physical touch. It is a bonding hormone between mother and child, spouses and partners, family and friends. To put it simply, without hugs, humans will not survive. Science shows us that hugging has health benefits, physical, emotional, and social. 
One 1950s research study that illustrates the benefits of hugs is known as the Wire Monkey Mama Study. Led by University of Wisconsin psychologist Harry F. Harlow, the research was analyzing maternal-child attachments and whether this was based on the mother as a food source or as a comfort and nurturing source. The researchers took one group of infant monkeys and placed them with a wireframe surrogate of their mother with an expressionless block head. The wire surrogate was warmed with a radiant heat. The other mother surrogate was a block of wood with soft foam cloth wrapped around it and a more expressive face warmed by an internal light bulb. Although both groups of baby monkeys received food, they only stayed with the wire mother long enough to feed, whereas the group with the softer, warmer, more expressive mother clung to the wooden surrogate, hugging it for hours. Similar studies to the wire monkey mama study were conducted among human infants in a neonatal hospital where one group of babies were held and rocked by the nurses, while the other group were fed and cleaned, but not held or nurtured. The second group, who was mostly devoid of human contact, cried for longer periods, had less restful sleep, higher levels of anxiety and agitation, and ultimately showed lower weight gain as well as less regulated heartbeats after the experiment. In one of these studies, the skin-to-skin -skin contact, known as kangaroo care, of nurses and parents in the earliest infant stages have beneficial physical and psychological health outcomes even 10 years later for the children who received the physical contact of their mother when they were infants. And finally, physical contact and hugs are beneficial for older adults as well. One study conducted at a nursing home in New York assessed the health benefits, life satisfaction, and subjective well-being of a program they called Embraceable You. The premise was to have intergenerational hugging between staff, family, and residents. Trained hug ambassadors were brought in to administer appropriate types of touch, while residents were given buttons to wear if they were interested in taking part in the experiment. The residents were given a token for every hug they received, finally resulting in nearly 1,400 hugs in the first week. The results speak for themselves, as the researchers found the residents with the highest level of hugs, which was about three or more per day, were not feeling hopeless or depressed. 97% said they weren't feeling depressed anymore. 88% were more interested in other social activities they could join. 71% were sleeping better. And 66% said they felt more energetic. Now, during the pandemic, because again of social isolation, particularly in assisted living communities, spontaneous hugging booths as you see on the screen, cropped up. They used the plastic wrap to have people on each side of the screen. They made the similar type of arms that you could put through as similar to an, a NICU, where you could stroke and touch your child inside a NICU, but still have it be protective by the, the plastic and get your arms around each other. So these kind of what you might think of as virtual hugs cropped up all over the country during the pandemic because of the need for physical contacts between both the family caregivers and our older loved ones. Even in Japan, they had a spontaneous trend in cuddle cafes where lonely people could go in to get a hug service to have human connection. Now we know that technology really can't replace human touch. Despite 
what some of the technology experts believe, virtual hugs through things like a haptic vest or sending a hug emoji are just not the same. We have to realize that nothing replaces human to human contact. Neuroeconomist Paul Zak said in his TED talk that we need eight hugs per day to have the oxytocin release become neuroprotective, meaning hugs can actually improve our brain health. So whether you hug a family member, partner or friend, in the same way we know we should get at least eight servings of fruits and vegetables, we need eight hugs to be truly healthy and happier. And let's not forget our furry friends. The hugs we get and give our pets is just as strong as the hugs of humans to heal our souls. We hope you enjoyed this Me Time Monday wellness hack. Each episode of our Caring Club On Air podcast features a new Me Time Monday wellness hack. And you can check out more great wellness articles on our website and from my upcoming book, Me Time Monday, the weekly self-care plan to balance body, brain, and a busy life. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Caregiving Club On Air. Please listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, and other listening channels. Check out all the resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com. Just hit the podcast tab at the top, and you can email us with any questions or comments at podcast at caregivingclub.com. I'm Sherry Snelling, and I wish you all to take care and stay well.